Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Since we are starting late, let me go ahead and get us started. Apologize for the delay. I'm Craig Calhoun, and I'm the director of the LSE. And accordingly, it's my pleasure to welcome you on this first day of Ramadan. I'm not sure whether this was brilliant planning, <laughs> poor planning, or simply God's will, but it adds a resonance <laughs> to this evening's event. This is part of a series of discussions focused on religion and the public sphere in Britain. I'm grateful to my co-organizers, Professor Matthew Engelke and the Reverend Dr. James Walters. The point of this series is to know religion a bit better, not simply as believers or disbelievers in specific tenets of faith, not simply as insiders to one or another specific community of religious practice and meaning, but as members of the public. The idea of the public involves common interests and communication among strangers. Strangers means, of course, people we don't literally know, but also people with whom we do not share a close communal bond of common relationship, people who are, in some sense, outside a community that gives us identity. When Muslims meet Christians and Jews, when atheists meet those with faith in God, it is in a public realm where we must navigate not having complete cultural or social commonality. Accordingly, we may not know what the others take for granted or as proven or what the others deem most important. It may turn out that, in fact, we share many very important interests in peace and prosperity or family and freedom, but we don't know this if we don't communicate and if we don't learn. If religion is kept out of public life and interaction, if we are as embarrassed to talk about religion as about money, then we don't learn. If public communication about religion is dominated too one-sidedly by one religion or one set of spokespersons, we don't learn what we might about others, even about what they share. If public communication is dominated by those who wish only to argue stridently for the superiority of their religion, and neither listen nor carefully explain, then we don't learn. But when we bring religion into public discourse, we reveal not just facts about each religion. The public sphere is not a religious literacy class. In public discussions, we communicate perspectives with which to see and understand all of what is important in public. This may include the views of different religious people on the morality of money, on the justice or injustice of war, the rightness of humanitarian assistance to those who suffer, or what obligations we owe to the poor, or even, though this isn't mainly a religious question, on whether Britain should stay in the EU. This evening, it gives me great pleasure to introduce Professor Tariq Ramadan, who will speak on equal rights and equal dignity of human beings. Dr. Ramadan is Professor of Contemporary Islamic Studies at Oxford University, teaching in the two faculties of Oriental Studies and Theology of Religion, Theology and Religion. This may itself have a certain comment on how we engage religion. 
He is a senior research fellow at St. Anthony's College and also in Kyoto, Japan at Doshisha University and a visiting professor in the Faculty of Islamic Studies in Qatar and director of the Research Center of Islamic Legislation and Ethics in Qatar. Tarek holds an MA in Philosophy and French Literature and a PhD in Arabic and Islamic Studies from the University of Geneva. And in Cairo, he received intensive one-on-one training in classic Islamic scholarship from Al-Hazar University scholars. Tarek's research interests include the issues of Islamic legislation, politics, ethics, Sufism, and contemporary challenges that face both Muslim-majority countries and the West. He's active at both academic and grassroots levels and through both scholarship and social engagement. And he's contributed very importantly to debate on the issues of Muslims in the West and also the Islamic revival in the Muslim world. He spent much of his career seeking and developing a spiritual understanding based on the foundations of Islam. And he's inspired and facilitated others to do the same, at the same time encouraging fellow Muslims to participate fully in the societies in which they live while remaining faithful to core Islamic ethical and spiritual values. In a recent book on radical reform, Tariq called for bringing a radical reform to the Muslim mind and an Islamic awakening. It's built on previous work, which he explored um, into earlier books, basic issues about how different faiths work in different kinds of societies and how they relate to each other. And he has worked closely in a variety of interfaith dialogues and engagements around the world. In his interfaith work, Tarek explains that while our theologies differ, understanding and appreciating our differences and our common ethical grounds enable our joint work for social justice. Tarek's books are many, and I'm going to skip over listing them all and refer you to his website, which has that, but I'm going to indicate more specifically that his next key book, Quest for Meaning, Developing a Philosophy of Pluralism, is an important journey through religions and traditions to bring to the fore common grounds on which we stand as we face human frailty, the precariousness of our lives. This follows on in the footsteps of the prophet, and since Tariq is a man who believes in what in my religious tradition we would call a providential future, he has been willing to announce a series of further books into the future. I always think of this as tempting the devil because the number of ways in which you can fail to meet your deadlines is large. Matarik has promised a very short introduction to Islamic ethics and an essential introduction to Islam, its spirituality, fundamentals, and history, both of which should be published next year. Tarek has been a consistent and energetic champion of critical self-assessment, positive engagement, freedom of speech. There is no better qualification for being with us tonight. So please join me in welcoming Tarek Ramadan to LSE. Thank you. Thank you so much for this invitation and this introduction. 
Greg, and I'm very happy to be here. Sorry to be uh, late coming straight from uh, Oxford. And uh, uh, let me go straight to the point. We have, uh, I will try to, to, to be within, or to, to speak within 20 to 30 minutes maximum and to have time for the discussion, which I think it's important. As a, 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 an introduction, I want to um, highlight three main points that I think are important when it comes to our discussion. Um, I think that sometimes we enter into dialogues and discussions at the periphery and we forget to uh, remind ourselves and to be clear on some of the principles and the fundamentals on which I hope we can agree. And there is something that what, wherever you are, in Muslim-majority countries or in the West, we need now to be clear about the fact that pluralism is a fact beyond all the labels and the terminology that you are using. For example, if you go to France and you speak about Britain and say multiculturalism is failing and then that's not the way forward, you have exactly the same discussion in Canada, in the U.S. as well. So I think that whatever the name, at the end of the day, Winning it or not, our societies are pluralistic societies. So this is, I would say, an objective way of dealing with the reality, and we have to live together. Uh, so I, I'm not going to enter into ideological discussion, even though during my talk you will see that, of course, I'm taking a stand on this, but I think that we need to start with this understanding. And, and uh, when we say multi uh, pluralism, we are talking about multiple cultures, we are talking about multiple religions, we are talking about multiple memories, and this is also something which is important, and we should not underestimate the, uh, the impact of our memories into our common history when we are trying to live together. Just look at uh, so many countries, they look at the situation in so many countries where people have not solved the problem of past colonial memories about still what is happening. Just look at what is happening in France. You cannot understand what is happening in France if you don't understand the reality of the colonialism and, and the relationship. Exactly the same with India, exactly the same with some countries. So this is one thing. Now, there is a second principle that is simplistic to repeat and so important uh, to, to understand from within. And it's part of the title. Human beings have equal dignity. And equal dignity means that we also have to challenge our first way of dealing with issues when it comes to, for example, violent terrorism or violent extremists that we have today. And we watch our TV and it's as if when it happens there, it's as if it has less impact as when it happened in our countries. It's as if... And this, you know, in an emotional and rational way, or for example, I was uh, 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 responding to a journalist asking me, are you Paris? And I said, I'm going to say I'm Paris if I add to Paris Beirut and Damascus and, and all the countries, all the cities where we, the people are experiencing. So the equal dignity of the dead is also something which... Uh, uh, audio press is something which is the starting point of the way we watch TV, the way we look at the world, not only thinking, and sometimes when we speak about radicalization, for example, in some of the policies, we look at what is happening in the West, and it's as if 
we are normalizing terrorism and violence elsewhere. And I think that this is nurturing a sense of uh, uh, hierarchy between people. And I think that this is the starting point of potential racism that are not which is not acceptable, and I have to, we have to check this. We have to check our reaction to, uh, to this, to the point that I would say, in a non-selective way, when we say equal dignity, I would say, for example, something which uh, uh, it's essential. In the Islamic tradition, there was something which was very interesting in, in, in bioethics and medical ethics, where you had scholars very much involved in what we call fiqh, Islamic law and jurisprudence, and saying what you deal with a sick man or woman, he or she has no religion. You go and you try to save the people. A medical doctor don't ask about the religion of the people. You don't deal with this. You deal with life with the same equal dignity. And I would say, as much as we are saying the sick has no religion, we should say the poor has no religion, the oppressed has no religion, the refugee has no religion, and even the oppressor has no religion. We have to be critical towards the oppressor, and we have to support every single human being, whatever her or his religion. That's the very essence of what I understand when I'm talking about equal dignity. And we have it is something which is essential in the Islamic tradition, not always understood by Muslims, but this is the starting point where when we are talking about universality, we have to start with this common understanding. We can see here that we have common ground. When we have in the Quran, we give dignity to human beings, mean all the human beings, whatever their religion. Dignity is not disputable, and this is uh, the starting point of our common journey as a humanity. But this is something which is important, and every one of us, in our personal commitment to justice and solidarity and dignity, we also have to check our emotional reaction to some events around the world. Are we reacting the same? Are we supporting every people? Are we selective in our support? Uh, because the way we deal with the world is coming also to come back to the way we deal with our fellow citizens and the, our fellow residents into the society, with the, the way we look at people who are perceived as uh, alien or foreigners or not one of us. And the one of us is critical in the discussion about, for example, the UK and pluralistic society. Now, when we talk now, and this is the third point of my uh, introduction, when we speak about equal rights, this has to do also with us living in a society where here, when it comes to our uh, environment, we should be clear that we are supporting rule of law. So we are all equal before law, and this is equal rights, and I would say also equal duties when it comes to, because I have a problem with citizenship understood only as a set of rights and not a set of uh, obligations towards the collectivity and towards the community. So depending on your status, you are a citizen, you are a resident, you are a visitor, or this is important, is the legal framework. And we have to talk about this because if we don't have the two, the equal dignity of human being and the equal rights, it might be that sometimes when we see people being a threat, we are going to use the legal against the threat, which is what is happening in many of our societies today. It's we reduce the, the scope, we reduce our freedom, we reduce our rights in order to uh, secure what we perceived as being under threat. 
And this is exactly what's happening. In, if, if you have an understanding that secularism, at the end of the day, it's against religion, when you see the new visibility of people, you are using secularism as a weapon against what is the threat itself. So if we are not clear about what we are talking about, the legal could be uh, a way of protecting ourselves by reducing not only the freedom of the people who are coming, but the freedom of everybody. And I think that this is dangerous for everybody. So having said that as a, uh, an introduction, let me say something about the starting point of my journey. Because I have been, as uh, you, you heard, I have been involved almost for 20, now 25 years in interface dialogue talking. And, and, and my, my take on interface dialogue was not first to sit around the table. It was to go there. I went to Latin America in Brazil. I went to the uh, uh, priest in the liberation theology. I went, I spent time with the Dalai Lama and, the, and the, the, the Tibetans supporting their cause to the point that the Chinese government told me, you are not welcome in our country, which was a way for me to be proud of it. There are, there are three or, or, or four countries where they said that I was not welcome. By the way, for six years in the States, I was banned, and I said, under the Bush administration, I was proud and said, that's fine. That's, uh, 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 and other uh, countries where I think it's, it's, it was through practical uh, uh, realities on the ground and, and, and to be dealing with people of other faiths. Uh, the, 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 the starting point of this uh, was deeper than only trying just to try to find the common ground. And I think that sometimes we go quickly to try to say in which way we are common, and we forget to have a dialogue of the centers. We, had, we have a dialogue at the periphery of our values, but not at the center. So this is why it's very important to, when I'm, I'm dealing with an atheist, with his or her philosophy, with an agnostic, with her or his philosophy, with a Christian, with a Jew, with a Buddhist, uh, uh, a Hindu, uh, even a Muslim, it's very important to have a, a dialogue at the center of what we believe. So the cosmology, what is the meaning you give to things? And this is why I think it's important if I'm saying we have an equal dignity and we need to have equal rights. This is based on a cosmology, the way I look at the world, the meaning I give to the world. And very often we skip this. It's as if it's a given. We don't, this is philosophy at the end of the day. Let us come to the practical side. And I think, you know, in the book, The Quest for Meaning, I'm saying we have to reconcile ourselves with four disciplines. One of them is philosophy. The second is teaching religions, because I really think that we need to have more re uh, knowledge about religion. I'm not talking about catechism, I'm talking about the knowledge of religion. Uh, the, the, the third one is history, because I, I think we are lacking memory. And the, th the fourth one is arts and imagination, because I really think that creativity is missing in the way we deal with one another. It's Tell me something about your creativity. We have to learn from that. Arts is a very important way of living together. Uh, and getting a sense of the imagination that is nurturing other civilizations and other religions. Having said that, I think that this uh, uh, cosmology is, is uh, how do we reconcile ourselves with philosophy and metaphysics. So the discussion that we have here in our society, I think that in Britain, in the West, we are unfortunately very quickly and going very superficial in the way we want to live together at the periphery of what we think and the values. And I think that there is no real and deep discussion about our respective philosophies, how the meaning you give to death, the meaning you give to life, the meaning you live to your presence on earth. 
And this is not only a religious question, by the way. It's, it's, it's a human question. It's the starting point of our journey. And I think on this, we need really to, to, uh, to, uh, uh, to come to a deeper understanding. And for example, when I deal with uh, uh, Western Muslims today, the starting point of the journey is not to please the fellow citizens. It's just know yourself. One of the main problems that I have with my fellow citizens is very often I am perceived as a threat, not because of who I am, because of the quest they have about who they are. Self-ignorance is the most uh, important, uh, and sometimes when you don't know about your own religion, you are scared of the people who are coming with a sense of being assertive with their own knowledge, their own identity, and their own uh, uh, answer. So this is why, for example, when dealing with this, this, the sense, for example, in my cosmology, in the way I look at the word saying one humanity, and there is something which is never to be underestimated, is when I'm speaking about brothers and sisters, there is something which is deep brothers and sisters in humanity. This is something which is essential. Whatever is your religion, whatever is your color, whatever is your origin, at the end of the day, the starting point is there is one humanity and there is brotherhood and sisterhood as to our origin. Having said this, one humanity is not uniformity. And from the very beginning, there is something in all our tradition. But I find this in Judaism. I find this in Christianity. I find this in many. But it depends who is talking to me. The interpretations are, because we have, I have some Muslims, the way I'm talking now, saying, what are you talking about? The chosen people are the Muslims. That's it. This is said in the Quran. So they take a verse and they tell you this is the way. You have exactly the same in Christianity. And, and once I was in Berlin talking to, uh, at that time he was not uh, the the Pope, Benedict XVI, he was the Cardinal uh, uh, Ratzinger at that time, we were talking there, and somebody stood and said, no, outside the church, no salvation. So you have people who have this perception that uh, uh, they can reduce the scope, but at the end, within every religious tradition and philosophy, you have people who have another way of interpreting with this understanding that, yes, one humanity and a diversity. And if God had will, this is what is said in the Islamic tradition, God would have made you one community. So by his will, there is a diversity. And not only this diversity is there, but it's a needed and necessary diversity that you need. Why? Because it's going to teach you intellectual humility. It's going to teach you the sense of knowing the other in order to know yourself. So this diversity, it's a needed diversity. To the point that deep down in this cosmology, to tolerate the others is not enough. To tolerate could be to suffer, or it's a position of power. It could be. In the Western tradition, it was mainly the starting point was talking to the state to make uh, the state aware that we have to deal with the diversity of religions, the minorities, and all this. But we have to go beyond this by saying two things respecting the presence of the other has conditions. And, and to go beyond tolerance has conditions. And the first one is mutual knowledge. You can tolerate me by ignoring me, but you don't respect me if you ignore me. So this sense of uh, within this cosmology and the diversity, which is based on there is no way to succeed in uh, uh, having or trying to keep a pluralistic society if we keep on 
uh, nurturing mutual ignorance. So it's all about knowledge. It has to do with knowledge. It doesn't mean that with knowledge is enough because some are very knowledgeable and racist, knowledgeable and, uh, and uh, dogmatic. You know, you can be very knowledgeable and dogmatic. Dogmatic is sometimes a mindset. It's the way you look at the world. You know whatever you want about the world, but at one point say, I'm right. So there is only one conclusion. You are wrong. That's the reality of the dogmatic mind that we find in all the tradition and even with people who are doubting. The way they deal with doubt is very dogmatic. Because I doubt, so it means I'm open, so you are not. So once again, it's exactly the same. You have very dogmatic mind in all the spiritual traditions of the philosophical tradition. But this is, for me, something which is important in the way we have to deal with humanity and, and understanding this diversity as something which is a needed and respected uh, uh, necessity. Now, with this, one humanity and, 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 and an accepted and needed and uh, uh, necessary diversity, there is one thing which is a very important discussion. So what if every one of us thinks that my values are the universal values? So once I was talking to a, a philosopher who was saying, our Western universal values. I said, hold on. Western or universal? <laughs> or is it the West, the universal? But you have exactly the same in religions. You have people saying Islamic universal values, Islamic or universal, or you have the monopoly of the universal. So this is a deep discussion here, is how do you, and it's not new in the Hegelian tradition, is how do we talk about the concrete universal? So is it something which is constructed and built bottom up, meaning out of our common rationality, we are creating or accessing something which is the universal, so it could be only rational, or is it a top-down, which is coming from the revelation, and this is where it's going to be understood. So, so the process, the way you deal with the universal, it's something which is open to the debate from the philosophical tradition, and once again, we have it exactly the same in the very deep, uh, uh, we have the Mu'tazila, you know, the rationalists in the Islamic tradition, you have the, the people are saying, no, it's coming from the book, the Ashara, but all this, you can find it in the Cartesian tradition, in the Kantian tradition, exactly the same discussion in how do we build the universal and how are we accessing. So now if you come and we understand the cosmology is, uh, the way you deal with this is you need to accept the different path. But at the end, what is going to be the universal on which we agree? Only one thing. It's a shared universal. The only universal is shared. So uh, I took in the book that uh, was mentioned the, the image of the mountain by saying the, the universal is the summit of the mountain and there are different paths, but no one has the monopoly. Except the one who look at the mountain from the top and say, I'm God. Or the dogmatic mind, I have the monopoly. So we can't do this and we should not do this, but this is something which once again, it's not to be just discussed like this around the table. It's really the way you look at the world. It's the way you have this cosmology, the way you look at this, uh, uh, the understanding that at the end, also something which is very important in my tradition, which I found in so many other traditions. It, it comes back to what I found in the very old native uh, uh, narrative about the lands when in the United States of America, the Indians and the Native Americans were saying, we understood that we belong to the land 
you came telling us that the lands belong to you. So it's another way. It's, this is very important. This is the way you deal with the environment. If now we come and we try to get the very deep discussion about the environment, even the notion of the environment, if you deal with some Hindus and Parikh, because Parikh was, for example, once telling me, that's a very Western way of dealing with nature, environment. It means you are the center. Environment, you are the center. I say, that's true. <laughs> There's something which is the way you deal with the world. Is, and I think that these are discussions that are missing today in the way we deal with ourselves, in the way we look at our own tradition, and in the way also we are deeply uh, uh, dealing with, for example, uh, the universal. So my take on the universal, when, when I think that I'm touching something that I can call universal value and the equal dignity is something which is shared with others. So it could be shared with a rational mind. It could be shared with a mystical tradition, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. This is where, but to come to the shared universal, we have to start from the center of our respect, for the center of our cosmology. For example, in the way we look at the world, which is also something which is uh, uh, a very deep discussion that we need. Having said that, and coming to my conclusion, uh, uh, through just one thing. So this is going to be translated into something which is our reality in our life. So Olivier Roy, when he was talking about, you know, when we live together in a pluralistic society, the only thing that is going to bring us together is the legal framework. At the end of the day, rule of law is, got, is going to protect the vulnerable to uh, put some limits to the powerful and tries to, to come together. Equal citizenship is the, the legal translation to equal Humanity, equal dignity. That's all fine, except that it doesn't work like this in our societies. It's not the legal framework. It's not enough. We need to do much more because the legal... Uh, but it's the starting point on which we have to, uh, uh, to start. And having said this, when it comes to our cosmology, uh, we have the perception that in some tradition there is no difference between religion and politics. We keep on repeating this about Islam, for example, as if the Muslims have a problem with the Western societies because they are not differentiating between the two. I think that this is, uh, this is not the reality uh, on two ways. First, from within the very deep Islamic tradition, but also in what we see today in, uh, in, uh, in our society. So when it comes together and say, okay, look... At the end of the day, we have a, a rule of law, we have a, 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 a legal framework. It's a secular one, and the secular one never meant in history, except for some advocates, it never meant no religion at all. It meant trying to be together. In fact, it was a way to have a diversity within a society, not to make the, this diversity disappear. It's as if when we are in some countries say, we don't want to see you, the only acceptable Muslims is the invisible Muslims. They say, no, you are, you are changing the very nature of what secularism was about through some minds. So, so, so the fact that we are refusing that uh, religion is taking over the state or taking over power that's, I think, it's essential in our way of living together. Now, living together doesn't mean that because we don't want religions to take over, you want all the religions to disappear. And not only this, what are the religions today bringing to the discussion about our civil societies? This is also a very important question. 
I don't want as a citizen to disappear. Not, not, not only I don't want to disappear as a Muslim, but I think that there is no contradiction with me being a Muslim and me being a citizen. To the point that in one of the books, Western Muslims and the Future of Islam, I'm advocating ethics of citizenship. And ethics of citizenship, citizenship is my legal status. I'm a citizen. But now I, ethics is the values that I have, solidarity, justice, dignity, uh, serving humanity. is coming from my tradition, and there is no conflict except for those who think that we don't want to see anything from your religion. So if we come together in the name of this common, uh, this, uh, uh, common dignity, equal rights, this is where there is a dimension that religions and philosophies, I'm not, you know, when I'm talking about interface dialogue, I'm not saying only religious people. I want in interface dialogue to have atheists. I want to have agnostics. I have to have all the people who have an under, uh, uh, a question or a quest for the meaning or have answers, and we have to come together in this discussion. And, and, and my point in this is the role that we can play in the whole discussion here, uh, coming from this cosmology, coming to the legal framework where we are citizens with the same status, equal status, we can be residents, we can be visitors, uh, or guests, or hosts, or migrants, or refugees in a society, depending on our status, is how in this discussion uh, I would, for example, say that uh, the religious traditions have to play a role. And there is one thing which I think, once again, for me, it's, uh, it's important uh, uh, in our discussion. Just what I did right now. In my discussion is to bring again at the center the meaning of life. Why am I saying this? Because the meaning of life is always a question about the, the ends of human activities. So yes, the meaning of life means I want to question the very ends of sciences. What are you trying to do with sciences? The very goals and ends of uh, the way we deal with nature. I want us to bring again to the center within sometimes our consumeristic society, consumerist society, and where everything is about technology, questioning the goals. Where, for example, today, I just did a book in, in French uh, with a French philosopher who is a very well-known he wrote about uh, complexity, Edgar Morin. And he was saying one of our main problems in our societies now is fragmentation of knowledge. So we are, it's so fragmented that we are unable to question the goals of our knowledge. What are we trying to achieve? I think, yes, this is where we can come together and question this in philosophical terms, but also from our religious traditions. Why should we avoid having this discussion as something which is essential uh, when it comes to, to this. Spirituality, for example, spirituality, we are fasting today, and of course it's visible. It's visible that I'm not drinking. Fasting is intimate, and it's, it's visible as it's collective. So this is also why, for one month, within the consumer society, you stop eating and drinking and questioning. And this is done by the Christians, it's done by the Jews, and this is why we can also question. This is from the, sense, the meaning of life to spirituality, it's important. And then what I think is important in our discussion, and get it right, I'm not talking about uh, uh, taking over power. The separation for power, it's a, it's, a, it's a starting point in my discussion. And then it's how do we construct the whole thing when it comes to solidarity, when it comes to justice, and when it comes to uh, uh, um, our involvement. And my last point here is 
I would say that in this journey, coming from the fundamentals about this equal dignity, equal rights, discussing the, our cosmology and respecting cosmologies, and then how do we deal with citizens, this ethics of citizenship that I'm talking about, and coming together, being able to talk about the meaning of life, spirituality, solidarity, and justice, environment, all the questions that are critical and in which we, we are involved in this. At the end, what is important for me, I can't imagine that we could end up with this very nice slogan, you know what, we have to live together. I'm sorry, it's not enough for me. There is no way to live together if we don't do together, work together, are involved together. In fact, the real way of living together is to be active and proactive. In. And this is what I put in the, the Western Muslims and the future of Islam. Say, the third age of our presence of Western Muslims in pluralistic society is added, our added value in doing with others. And stop, and this is what also something I will surprise you, but I'm saying to Muslims, for example, in the West, stop talking about Islam. It's a trap. The common values that we have, what we have to come together and we have to try, is on projects, on issues, on what we are doing together. And be a witness through your action, not through labels. Because there is a trap here when your identity is, in fact, a kind of a jail, something which is pushing you on the defensive. And I would say that this is where, uh, uh, but I want you just to get a sense of, I'm coming to that conclusion because I'm starting with a very wide, and a, 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 a world view that I want to start with, not defending my identity, but expressing my belonging to a specific meaning, and it's completely different. One is assertive and open, the other is on the defensive and closed. Thank you. Okay, the format here is for me to ask a few questions and have a little dialogue with Tarek and then to enlarge it, opening it to the entire audience. And I want to pick up on... Um, two or three questions that touch just on what you were talking about at the end. You spoke at the very beginning of your talk about having a dialogue, potentially an interfaith dialogue, that addresses the center, that really gets to basic principles, that is not the easy common ground that can be found at the periphery. At the end, you spoke about the importance of working on problems together. And um, in thinking about interfaith dialogue, it's on interfaith relations to me, it's often seemed... One part may be dialogue, but one part is finding things you want to work on together. And that may draw people to the dialogue. So I wonder if you have a, a sense of priority in this. What's the, the, how do you balance the um, talking part with the practical action part? Um, how do you get to the ability to pursue the practical action together? Yeah, I, I think it's important. And I, it's not mutually exclusive. I think you can do both. And uh, it depends. I, I think, for example, in, in my life over the last uh, 30 years, we had settings where it was possible to come and to have discussion about, you know, very essential, you know, the, 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 from the meaning of life, the, 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 you know, the notion or the perception or the understanding of God, 
forgiveness, justice, things like this. We need to have this discussion. Now, what is important is not to have these discussions in closed doors. Mm -hmm. We have to be connected to, to the people, and this is where it's not done enough. Very often, the people who are doing this job are traveling from one city to another, always the same people. They don't need, in fact, interface dialogue, and, and then they are specialists in interface <laughs> dialogue. I, I was one of them, by the way, and trying to connect this to the communities at the grassroots level. Now, at the same time, I think, and it's not always the same people, but it could be good to have people doing both. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's how do we translate uh, some of our values in practical terms in, in our uh, societies and how to... And, and, and we can see now that in the West we have people working in, in such a way. At the local level, there are lots of projects and lots of people doing things together. And I think that this is where, for example... Uh, I like this notion of having, you know, national movements of local initiatives and the local initiatives mm -hmm. is, is where the people have to, to work together. But uh, both, both need to work with their time. And their time is how do you expose this? How do you make this known by the people and not only in, uh, uh, in you know, in private or isolated way? Right. Um, well, that seems important. And, and indeed, you've called in, I'm certainly in radical reform, but I think in other work as well, for overcoming the impulse to compartmentalization and withdrawal, which may be a natural impulse um, and sometimes a defensive impulse and so forth, but you've, you've suggested that can be a mistake and a trap, but also that the idea of protecting the purity within and therefore compartmentalizing and withdrawing can be a, a problem in this. So you see a need for a more um, outward orientation and a, a mutual engagement in general. Yes, completely. And I, th I, I think it's very dangerous, this temptation to isolate yourself, to think that you are going to remain yourself as long as you are protecting yourself from the others. No, that's, this is why one humanity is based on diversity, and that diversity is not only needed, but it's necessary. I'm not going to be myself far from the others. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be myself in this interaction, in the way I'm, I'm listening and, and hearing. In fact, you know, I was born and raised in, uh, in, uh, in Switzerland, and the way I'm looking and, and, and constructing the all, you know, for example, I'm always talking about the fact that I have multiple identities. It's all coming from my experience, and it's, it's dealing with others. And I, I think that... Uh, it's very dangerous to think that purity and faithfulness is about isolation. No, mm. faithfulness is always about evolution. It's not about isolation. And, and, and purity, it's, it's never just to be far from the others. Purity is remain consistent while you are uh, uh, experiencing the journey of life. So is it, would I be going too far to think it is, um, the case that we have the same conflicts, at least the same kinds of conflicts and tensions within faiths that we have between faiths. And so that, that we don't have homogeneity and purity and we're all the same. And that one of the illusions of the compartmentalized approach is that it sort of says, oh, inside our compartment, we don't have to be evolving. We don't have to be in dialogue. We don't have to be exploring. We are all already the same. And Oh, yes. It's even, it's even more difficult sometimes within I have more problems sometimes to deal with fellow Muslims than to, to deal with uh, Jews, Christians, and people from... Because we are so close that at the end, there is a, uh, you know, there is a deep challenge about the, the authenticity. So when you have somebody from within your tradition looking at you and saying, you know what, you are not longer a Muslim, 
So, okay, he's putting you outside, outside your, the, the, the universe of reference. For some, for some Muslims, I'm no longer a Muslim, or uh, for some, for example, Daesh saying, threatening and saying this guy could be killed because he is distorting Islam from within. So with some people, it's not even possible to, to think about having a dialogue. And then look at what is happening today in the Muslim uh, uh, majority countries when you have this fracture between the Shia and the Sunni. And it's not manufactured from outside. Of course, it's instrumentalized. Of course, that's normal. But it's coming from within. You have scholars saying things that are just horrible and unacceptable about you know, being a Shia and being a, a, a Sunni. And I think that it's very difficult. So there, once again, even within, the sense of the unity of a spiritual community is not uniformity of thoughts. And we have very, very uh, difficult time to get this in a deep way. And sometimes when we say us, we are repressing us as much as we are keeping exactly. others yeah, out. Completely, yeah. The, does this go all the way to the person? Um, we have um, internal conflict and dialogue and um, are perhaps not as unitary always as the notion of the individual sometimes implies. And do um, and you see um, the ability to grow as a person, as a religious person, um, consisting in some part on being able to carry on an internal dialogue that recognizes you know, conflicts inside as well as with others? Yes. And, and you know, that, that's very important in, in the book that, in fact, it's, it's, I'm saying they are coming because they are already written, so, so I'm Good. not taking so, so many risks. <laughs> <laughs> so um, in the, the essential introduction to Islam, I'm, I'm, I'm dealing with the notion of ummah. And Ummah is understood as the spiritual community of all the Muslims around the world. And there is one word, one verse in the Quran saying, Inna Ibrahim kana ummatan. Ibrahim was an Ummah in himself as an individual. Meaning that there are multiple dimensions and you have to reconcile. And in another book about the, the, in the footsteps of the Prophet, the biography of the Prophet, I'm explaining that at the beginning of his spiritual journey, he was doubting himself. So this notion that there is no doubt in Islam, we don't doubt, and, and the only true faith is when you are convinced. No, this internal dialogue, it's all... And, and this is why I'm very, very close and, and very much thinking from within the mystical tradition, tasawwuf, the Sufism, why? Because in the process of your spiritual journey, the only way you evolve is by monitoring, questioning, asking. This is, this is a, a, an ongoing journey. So you can't just, and, and, and you should not pretend to be at peace with, you know, the only way you are at peace with questions is when you, you get an answer, not when you avoid the question. So that, that's essential. Yeah. It's always seemed to me a mistake when we talk about religion and we say it's beliefs and we ignore doubts or questions. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in a certain way, it's, it's the doubts and questions that drive us forward, and to label religions as, as beliefs um, implies that they're all settled. Mm. Yes, completely, I agree with that. The, um, I wanted to ask you to connect this a little bit to the 
Well, to the theme of resistance, which I know you've brought up in your, your sermons, your dialogues for um, Ramadan, as you're conducting an exploration um, through the month um, of this theme of resistance. But this is also a theme which you see as inner and outer at the same time, yes? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think that, you know... You looked surprised, by the way. I looked this. surprised that you knew about it, so because this is, this is starting today. So, so, uh, Wonders uh, of the worldwide world. Yeah. <laughs> yes, but uh, it's true. I decided every, every day of Ramadan to have three minutes on, on resistances. And uh, because, in fact, uh, there are two things for us in, in, in and, and once again this is something that we find in the other religious traditions and even in in, in Greek philosophy and, and, and in uh, uh, Western philosophy. In fact the notion of Sharia that is so central in Islam it's about following a path. You follow a path. It's not about God's law. It's not this is a very legal way of looking at it. It's the path. It's the way towards faithfulness. It's how to come close to yourself by coming close to to, to God and close to the very essence of life. And then in this journey, in this, uh, uh, on this path, you are struggling. You are struggling with your own self and you will find obstacles. So, and obstacles could be, for example, when uh, you are overwhelmed by your emotions, when the consumerist society is making you uh, dealing with havings and not trying to get the being, and then it's a resistance process. And the word that we use in Islam about this resistance on the path, it's a very deep and polysemic, multiple meanings in the, in, it's jihad. It's not jihad as we have it in, uh, around the world, but jihad which is resisting and reforming. So the resistances that we have, for example, I'm resisting myself sometimes in the way that I know that uh, sometimes, you know, I can surprise myself by how bad I can be. That's true. And don't laugh. Every one of you is like me. If you only take time to just consider who you can be, depending on who, how you are. That's, and that's, you, 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 you are, and this is the starting point of doubting us and say, okay, we have, I have to check. I have to be careful with my, I am able to do the worst as much as I'm able to do the best. So this resistance to the bad and the reform, it's, this is what I, mm -hmm. but now, this is what I am doing with myself. And then as soon as I deal with the world, it's exactly the same within my society, with, with my neighbor. With, so, so it's a process going from the intimate. And in fact, I'm always saying to Muslims, you will never get the right understanding of jihad if you don't bring it back to the very meaning of jihad in nafs, which is the jihad into yourself, which is resisting and reforming. It's not to kill, it's not to oppress, it's not to, no, it's resist and change for the better, wherever you are. So this is, and for example, now, as I'm not, some of us are not drinking and eating, it's the jihad, which is resisting something which is natural. And there is something which is deep here, which is uh, the spiritual, the, the physical, uh, abstinence to go to the spiritual food, which is you get something else. It's it's something else that you are getting to coming close to something which is the divine. It's all about this. So I, I would say it's resistance that is essential, but in the positive sense. And in fact, it goes with another word which I like, 
which is liberation, mm-hmm. is how through this resistance you liberate yourself from your ego, you liberate yourself from the consumerist society. Distractions. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Okay, and passions. And all of this, you've, you've said this two or three times, I just want to try to bring it out and get a little more. All of this also wrestles with a question of... Um, constancy and change what's mutable and immutable in islam but it would be the same in any religion yeah. i think and indeed in a a secular philosophy the ways in which jihad the ways in which struggle and the ways in which um resistance and reform and all these are movements that suggest a a potential for innovation a potential for doing better which we sometimes can say, oh yes, I understand I'm not doing as well as I should, but you're suggesting that Islam itself may evolve in some of its aspects, right? That the, the, um, there, are, there are immutable features and there are things that change either adaptively in a different context or transformatively in some way. Yes, exactly. I think that you're uh, summarizing. I think that in every philosophy or religion, there are what we call the immutable, the principles that are going, and, and the starting point for us is what we call Tawheed, which is the oneness of God. It's not going to change. Wherever you are, God is close to, to you as long as you are close to him. Then the second is the way we pray, the way we fast. There are things that are going to re- remain. But everything else, when it comes to translating things into the reality with the new questions that we have. In fact, what, you know, very often we have some scholars saying, you know what, Islam is very simple. Principles are very simple. Just implement them. My answer to this is that, yes, you are right. Islam is simple, but life is complex. So you have to deal with the complexity. And the complexity is uh, complex knowledge, complex uh, uh, realities, the way you deal with your own self. Because even with our own self, we are becoming very complex. In, in the way we have to deal with ourselves, it's just you can just realize that sometimes there is such a psychological pressure. The, the means, you know, for example, we are talking, two research were done in the States about the impact of the social networks onto us, about this perception that it's, it's, very, it's very big and that now the, you can come anonymous, so less responsibility into a big virtual world. It has an impact on our psychology. Sure. So, so at the end, oh, oh, I'm going to do this. When, it, when I come back to God, it's all about accountability. And then I, I look at this world, and the world is changing my relationship to space, time, and, and responsibility. This is very complex. We cannot just come to simple answers to this. And, and I think that we have to reconcile ourselves with... with uh, uh, Complexity, in, even in, with the language, even in the way we talk. You know the book that you were mentioning about the quest for, for, for meaning? I, I dedicated it to the semicolon. Because the semicolon is the punctuation of the complex sentence. But that's very essential. I think that we have to reconcile ourselves. And I, I would say, as we are within a university, all what we are saying here should not be you know, in this uh, uh, ivory tower. This has to be yes. brought back to... Uh, the, we have to serve the city. We have to serve uh, 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 our society. And I think we are not doing this enough. 
So I'm going to guess that the city is in part here, that um, these public events at LSE are all open, and we have people from various walks of life. Um, I must say people who can use semicolons well are very rare. Um, But... (laughs) This will be entirely a matter of oral comments, and we won't know whether anyone is using a semicolon. But let me invite your questions for Tarek. I'll wait for a microphone. Um, one of the stewards in a red shirt will bring a microphone, and please say who you are um, when you speak. And shall we take two or three at a time? Yes, okay. Yeah, okay. okay. So um, first, let's take the two, the woman and the gentleman in front of her on the aisle on this side, and then we'll come over here. Um, thank you very much, uh, Professor uh, Ramadan. Um, I uh, have a remark and a question. Very uh, short remark. Yeah, short remark is that um, I think uh, as we are from the same country, I'm also Swiss, uh, we say in French, vous prêchez pour un convaincu, means uh, for the ones who don't know, uh, you are preaching for, I think, people who are already convinced about this uh, equality. Because in the Western countries, we have this equality uh, more than in some other countries. And um, I, I am, I'm not sure that this uh, discussion can take place in uh, some other countries. And uh, we have also, like in Europe, they had missionaries who were going to help Many countries, they were uh, helping the people who were sick, but I personally, I'm ignorant of many things. Uh, But also from this thing, I'm ignoring that people from Muslim countries came here to help uh, sick people. So this is my remark. Um, The question I have is that um, about jihad, you said that jihad means resisting and reforming. I'm uh, admiring you because I think it's very idealistic to think that. Uh, do you think the suicide bombers are resisting or reforming? Okay. What uh, is their idea of Pass the microphone to the gentleman bomber. just in front of you. Yeah. alaikum. Ramzan Mubarak. Good to see you again. Uh, just, a share, just a quick question. I'm sure you probably got an answer. I think the time has now come for the West to take on the Middle East countries head-on about Islam and to talk about reform, resisting, jihad. And this is going to be the new order in this global world. But we, really, we have the resources and we really need to take on the bigots, you know, really. And we do have the means to do it. Okay. And then over here, uh, there's a woman just next to you, second seat in, wearing a black shirt. Yes. Hi, thanks very much. I'm Francisca Fay. I'm a PhD candidate at SOAS. I would like to know about how you extend this conceptualization of dignity and rights onto children or childhood as a whole, because I think children are the ones who are very often um, not included in conceptualizations of citizenship. And then I would like to know as well how, for example, in the field of um, child protection or corporal punishment, where I do my personal research on um, in Quranic schools in East Africa and Muslim communities, where 
the hadith and the Quran is often taken as the explanation for why, as the Prophet has been um, chastised himself, there is a continuation of that today. And then um, organizations who try to work against that are painted out, out as only trying to promote Western values. And then we have this kind of artificial clash or opposition of Western and non-Western values that in the end kind of come down to what I was asking about first, the conceptualization of the child included or excluded from humanity or from this idea of human being. Thank you. Thanks. Okay. Okay. Um, yes, about your, your first remark about... Uh, uh, I, I think it's, it's, uh, uh, it's not fair to say that there is nothing done by, you know, in Muslim-majority countries about solidarity. And, and then we, we, I don't like this kind of comparison or competition about, um, uh, because even with the missions that or missionaries that were going to the South, some were disputing the sincerity of what was done under colonization by trying to convert the people. Uh, and we have exactly the same with some Muslim organizations. They are also doing solidarity work, and we can question what are the intentions. Is it only to support and to help the people or not? But I would say that if we are fair with uh, Muslim-majority countries, you have lots of people working on solidarity. And the relation between South and North is not exactly the same. Now, if you are telling me that the rich uh, Gulf states are not doing enough with the money, I would be the first to say you are right. Um, they are helping, but not enough, and not doing the the, the job. And, and I would say, I wouldn't go. I wouldn't expect them to come to our societies in the West to do the job. I think that in African countries, in Asian countries, people are much more in need than what we are. And I think that we have to deal with uh, social justice and better distribution of. Uh, uh, wealth within our society when we have unemployment, when we have people marginalized. Now, um, about uh, what you are saying about uh, what I said is the deep understanding of the notion of jihad and then in which way we have to understand it. Now, is this abused? Is this misunderstood? Is this uh, instrumentalized by some uh, uh, groups? Of course, yes. So I wouldn't call what they are the people who are Daesh and all these people. I, I am. There are two things that I'm not doing. The first, I will never say they are not Muslims, because in my understanding, anyone who is saying I'm a Muslim is for me a Muslim. Now I may say you are Muslim. I, I disagree completely with what was you are do, what we are doing, but I'm not going to put you outside Islam as soon as you are saying you are Muslim. The second thing is to say this has nothing to do with Islam. This are no, they are quoting verses. They are so we have to challenge them. We have to respond to them, and I did this so many times with verses, with, uh, we have to challenge this distorted understanding, but to say it has nothing to do with Islam is not going to solve the problem because I met some Muslims who the way they are reading the scriptural sources is very, very dangerous. They are, so I would never say it has nothing to do with Islam. Uh, so I am challenging this, and, and in the notion of jihad, I would say what you are doing has nothing to do with jihad. What you are doing is uh, criminal. 
you are killing innocent people, you are killing, and, 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 and we, we have, you know, when you, you deal with war, there is ethics of war, there are principles and there are things that you cannot uh, do, and then within the accepted diversity among Muslims, this is not accepted. So I draw a line and say, this is, so, so when you are talking about, uh, do I think that they are uh, resisting or they are reforming? No. They are killing, and the whole philosophy behind has nothing to do for me with the principles of Islam. So I acknowledge they are Muslims. I respond as a Muslim to Muslims, uh, and we try in this to recapture. Even, you know, they are using Khilafah, for example. I think that what they are doing in the name of Khilafah has nothing to do with Khilafah, so we have to challenge them. So the best for people who, are, who want to understand, it's not to think that the words they are using and what they are doing are the real or have or are, they are translated in the real way with what they are doing is also to, to listen to other voices because at the end it's a struggle. I'm myself struggling with these people by showing how much they are distorting Islam. And what is important is for our fellow Citizens, as Swiss, as British, as it's to come to this discussion and to understand it's a struggle. There is internal discussions and tensions that has to be uh, that have to be understood. So this is uh, uh, what we were saying. I, 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 you were saying that the Europe should deal with the Middle East, the West. At who in the West? What do you mean by the West? So the governments or the yeah, I don't. I don't know what I'm expecting from the Western government so so far. So, so because I'm not. I don't see that they are bringing the best. Um, uh, but I think that uh, to sit down and to blame the West for everything is wrong. It's completely wrong. And I think that, uh, yes, you cannot deny the fact that there was colonization. I, I, we cannot de de deny the fact that the way some Western countries and European countries were dealing with dictators and supporting, all this is right. But at the end, if we, we keep on repeating this, you know, it's, we put ourselves in, 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 in the West, and, and as uh, there, there is this narrative and the rationale in, in the Middle East is that we play the victims. So what I would prefer... It's not expecting the West to do the job, but uh, to have uh, uh, intellectuals. The civil society in Muslim-majority countries, for example, in the Middle East, is to, to wake up and, and, and to be much more involved. At the end of the day, the first responsible of this, the, 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 the sad state of affairs in the Middle East are the Arab countries themselves and the Arab, Arab uh, uh, people themselves. So, so I think that... Uh, I'm not expecting something coming from the West. And uh, I was cautiously optimistic about what was called the Arab Spring. Because I, I think that we looked at the political side of the equation. We didn't look at the economic side and the geostrategic side. And I wrote this from the beginning. I was very, very uh, cautious about what was happening. But uh, I think that at least, at least, what I'm expecting from us as citizens, as intellectuals, as uh, politicians, at least in, in the West, is to ask our governments to be more consistent with our own values. Starting with what I am saying, equal, 
equal uh, uh, dignity for all human beings. And, I, and, I, and not to accept that uh, people are being killed. You know, it's one, you know, the average people killed in Syria today, it's 150 per, per, people per day. And, and what? It's normalized, it's just 150 people being killed and, and, and uh, through violent extremism. It's even more now in Iraq, a country that we don't even care about. It's as if it doesn't exist. It's Yemen, and Yemen is just unbelievable. Look now at African countries in Congo and everything. It's, what? Okay, it's normal. It's just we, we, we just care when uh, we are, are the target. And I think that uh, at least what we have to do is to come with, with a discourse here which is more consistent. What you, your question is very critical. It's very important. That's a very important question because if there is something which is missing in the Islamic literature, in fact, there are two things that are missing. The first one is a very deep discourse on womanhood and women, which is not based on women as a wife, as a mother, uh, as a daughter. Womanhood. Women as women. That's missing. You know why? Because mainly it's coming from patriarchal cultures and it was done by male. So, and male, when they deal with women, they are dealing with functions. On the other side, the other side is childhood. The status of the child, the status here as human being, how do we deal? So there are things that you can get from here and there. The problem is the whole philosophy that you have to deal with compared to some of the ahadith, prophetic traditions, that are talking about you know, punishment and, and, and education and rules and limits, you can use this and forget the essence. In fact, at the periphery of the question, you take the legal to forget the essential. So all this discussion, and this is where, if you go and you challenge this, you are going to be perceived as the Western uh, 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 coming to impose a certain way of dealing with issues. And this is where what is important, and you find some who are working now in the West and working in African countries who, from within the tradition, are trying to build something which has to do with the personal integrity of the the, the, the child, how do we have to deal, and for example, punishment, that's, uh, you know, I was criticizing the West by saying I want a moratorium on, uh, because the people understood it was only on stoning, but it was deeper than that, it was about uh, death penalty and corporal punishment. Corporal punishment is the way you deal with the body, is, is the personal integrity. So when we think about something which is in our tradition dealing with maqasid al-sharia, what are the higher objective of the way, uh, one of them is uh, the integrity of the person, is, it's, it's the individual. So not the adult. We, have, we, have, we need here to deal with life and how do we, do we construct a, a very deep uh, a philosophy on this. Today, this is a very superficial field. This is a, a neglected field. It's as if it doesn't exist. Uh, it's as if when you are a child, you are just waiting to become a mukallaf, so an adult, and it starts with this. And I think it's the opposite of all the deep Islamic philosophy when it comes to life and human being. So I would suggest that you are touching here something which is critical, what could be, for example, partnership here is from where you come, putting the question and helping through your question, 
the Muslim scholars and the Muslim intellectuals to build something out and through the questions that you have. And I think that this is the positive dimension, which uh, if you go only, this is where, for example, this discussion that we had, do we start only with the practical or do we have the theoretical? This is why we need both. If you go to practical, it's going to be misunderstood. You are colonizing us. If you have both and you rely on some internal voices, that could be something that is helping to move forward. But you are, you are right. It's, it's really missing in, in the discussion. Okay. Gentleman up about halfway up in a striped shirt. Good evening, uh, Professor Ramadan. Um, it's been an equally, I would say, uh, good evening. Professor Craig, um, I've watched you both um, addressing us on core aspects of your um, discussion or, or theme, rather. Um, having listened to you so far, sorry, I forgot to introduce myself. My name is Fabian. I did the LLB program uh, with the Berbeck College, University of London and uh, finished uh, last year. Uh, having listened to you uh, so far, uh, a particular aspect of this uh, discussion uh, you know, struck a chord with me, and it is that aspect of uh, your discussion which has to do with jihad. Um, I liken that uh, phase of your discussion to um, uh, what is a part of the mystical tradition of alchemy. So uh, there is a phase to alchemy which talks about transcendental, uh, 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 transcendental alchemy, meaning um, moving away from prior perceptions of alchemy, in, in a sense, transmutation of um, base material from uh, transmutation of base material from, um, or let's say transmutation of base material to much more nobler forms of silver and gold. Now in this, in the, in the transitional context or um, uh, uh, transcendental alchemy context, I'll be saying that it means in a sense um, moving away from that common chemical or chemistry notion of alchemy to um, manifesting the wisdom of God in us. Yes, okay. transcendental alchemy. This quite clearly matches with your idea of um, um, the jihad within the self, manifestation of the wisdom of God through questioning the self. And when you question the self, it involves a high price, abstention, for instance, you abstain from a lot of worldly values. In a sense, it increases your Puritan essence and you become one exemplary individual, in my view. This is, this is what I'm, I'm thinking about. Is it all came from my inner being and I, 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 I take that view. It brightens you, you become a shining spark and, ex, and, ex, and an example to humanity. But in as much as you endeavor to these higher values, it gets to a point where the people around you become a corruptive influence. And whether you like it or not, you become defensive, subconsciously. The question of integration, I, I quite readily agree with you. 
but it should be met with con- considerable caution. Uh, not because people are not willing to integrate. There are some Muslims who think that having attained these Puritan values, the question of mixing with other people without them accepting these values constitutes a corrupting uh, influence. So, um, to uh, bring me, this uh, to a conclusion. Please, uh, yeah. let me draw, come to a conclusion. So um, let's take that side of um, fears which might be apparent amongst certain Muslims. On the contrary, having listened to your notion of jihad, uh, you know, as that which is within the internal, the desire to question the self, uh, I, understood, I understand that, would you say this example should apply equally to Muslims the world over, and when they question themselves from this highly uh, reverent uh, uh, definition of of, of, of a jihad, if they question themselves, don't you do you think don't you think they would refrain from certain things they do, which I believe they simply do because they are not taking jihad from the perspective you've taken it. So reform, alchemy. That sort of transcendental alchemy should take place among Muslims. Thank you. Thank you. Now, if you would come down, there's a man in a white shirt in about the fourth row. Thank you, Professor Ramzan. Uh, at the end, I sensed uh, you argued for separating uh, a separation of power. So could you just elaborate on that? Because I see most of the conflicts and why dilly-dallying of equal rights and equal, di- equal dignity comes down to the question of power. It's the power of play. I mean, demographic changes and who becomes, like, powerful. So w- what that relationship is, how do you with that? Thank you. Okay. Thank you. And there's a woman in the third row. There. Yeah. Uh, good evening, Professor Ramadan. Good evening, Professor Hold the Calhoun. Microphone close. Uh, I'm an immigrant into India and I'm married to a Muslim man. And I'm afraid my question is actually quite simple. Seeing the sentence equal rights and equal dignity of human beings and accepting that that is an ideal sentence, I would like to know how the differentiation between Islamic traditions within nations and Islamic faith can lead to a hindrance of being accepted in a pluralistic society. Because very often there is um, a mix-up, shall we say, between what is tradition, accepted Islamic tradition, and what is Islamic faith. So which parts are a hindrance based on the equal rights? And, you know, simplest form is, of course... uh, dress, you know, where that is very often perceived by Western society as a comment on the rights of the woman, the children, the men, whatever. And I ask that question as from a point of living in India, where that is being used as, uh, shall we say, as a strong hindrance of full participation of Muslims within Hindu society. And you find this a simple question. <laughs> I hope for you it is. I was wondering the same thing. <laughs> well, I hope for you it is, uh, you know, alchemy not being my strong point. <laughs> okay. Good luck. 
Yes, you, your remark about um, um, alchemy and, and transformation, and in fact, the whole process of uh, uh, you were referring to reform with the, the two dimensions, adaptational and transformational. This is what I am advocating in uh, the radical reform, I say. And this is coming back to the spiritual thing. It's, uh, in, in fact, the only true spiritual reform is a transformational reform. It's, 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 it's the way you are reforming in the way you are transforming yourself. Now, what you are expecting is for all the people who have sometimes a distorted or superficial understanding to Islam to come to an essential understanding. We all would like this to happen. And this is what we have to, to, to carry on with education. But uh, whatever is our take on education, we have to repeat this. I, you know, I've been working on, on the field of education for uh, three decades now. You still have people who are going to be attracted by the superficial, by the binary, by the dogmatic, sometimes also out of frustration in their own life. You know, we are talking about radicalization of all the people who don't understand, for example, what jihad is all about. In many of the studies, and I've been involved in, in this at different levels, he started uh, in, in Egypt and then in the States just after 2001, and then in here in, in the country and, and at the European level. You know that uh, for almost 92% of the people who are attracted by the discourse on Internet, for example, and, and, and caught by that, 92% have not been practicing Islam for more than six months. So it's a very short period of time when they are attracted, brainwashed, and sometimes, you know. And, and what is working is the way the people behind the screen who are quite professional in the way they are dealing, quite, very smart in the way they are dealing, dealing with their frustration within the society. Dealing, and it, it could be that the frustration is not coming from somebody who has no education, no very knowledgeable, and sometimes the fact that you are in the society, you did all this you know, study, and at the end you have no job, and you have the feeling that you are not accepted. If somebody can play with this, so, so it's, it's, it's in the notion of jihad, all this, you have to, it's not simple. It's not, you know what, sit down, I'm going to tell you, deep down, there is liberation. Say, okay, fine, where is my job? Give me the job. Give me respect. Give me, you know, it's, it's, it's very often you don't deal with spiritual issues. We, you have to deal first with the psychology and the environment. But I, I agree that this would be, at least this is what, this should be part of what we have to do. Um, um, and then uh, what also is part of this is, is what I, I call for all of us, all of us, whatever is our take, whatever we do in our profession, there are two things, which is the spiritual humility and the intellectual humility are for me the two legs that are in fact needed in our society, what it means intellectual humility. Intellectual humility, it's part of this jihad. Is, is, uh, I, I think that the first sin is arrogance. Arrogance, dogmatic arrogance is something that I, I really deeply dislike because I think that this is why you don't listen, you don't, you're not open. It's, it's, you have the truth and, and you are the truth and at the end is, is, uh, is a way of dealing with human beings which is the starting point of, of everything. 
uh, that could be bad. About uh, um, separation of power and uh, the way I'm, I'm looking at it. In 2000, uh, uh, in 93, I wrote a book which, is, which was uh, Islam, the West, and the Challenges of Modernity, coming from a very, uh, trying to deal with the roots when it comes to power. And I am advocating the fact that uh, in, in the Islamic tradition, this perception that uh, the religious and religion and power are, are, is one of this and the same thing, I think I'm challenging this. And I came back, and I put this in many of the books, but I came back to the status of the, 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 the prophet. When he was to deal with revelation, the people were listening. But when it came to dealing with the state, he was listening. He was even challenged. Is this coming from God or is it coming from you? No, it's coming from me, so you are wrong. So challenging the power of human, and so he himself saying, you know better about the world than me, so... When it comes to social issues and social affairs, he was always dealing with what we call a shura. A shura is consultation. So there are two authorities. There is not only one. So it was in one person, but having two methodology. Here he was getting things as a, re a revealed text, and here dealing with distribution of power. And, and I think that this is critical. This is critical, and, and what we, we saw, for example, in the last book that I wrote about the Arab awakening, saying if you understand political Islam in the way it was, and it should be within the nation state, res, uh, resisting to colonialism and saying to the colonial powers, we have our own system and this is going to be called Islamic State. That's fine, but at the end, what is an Islamic State? Uh, and then you, you see them uh, moving and saying democracy is fine, and now it's a civil state. I think that the civil state, the fact that we have to go through the rule of law and there is no religion imposed on the people, it's equal citizenship for all, that's the starting point of pluralism. And, 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 and I think you are right. It has to do with power. It has to do with power. So uh, to have one religion monopolizing power and imposing, I think that this is, for me, unacceptable as a political system. Now, how this is going to be translated into every society, look at what is happening in the West. The American system is not uh, the British system, which is not the French. Every model is going to come from a specific country. You have uh, a history, a memory, a collective psychology, but the principle should remain. So in the immutable way, the principle of separation, in the contextual, historical way, every society. So don't go in Iraq and impose onto them a system which is not there, for example. Uh, there's, and, and, and I think that this is something which is the difference between principles and models. Principles could be trans-historical, models are historical. So let the people find their way, but with the same principle. And I think that anything, you know, uh, in many ways, for example, I was struggling with the French state by saying, I don't think it's right to prevent uh, uh, a woman from wearing the headscarf. I think it's none of your business. But I'm saying to Saudi Arabia and Iran, you don't have to impose the headscarf on women. That's none of your business. This is free, a free choice. You impose it's wrong. So I think that this is why we have to come with a strong discourse on the, the nature of the state we are talking about. Uh, and anything which, is to, which has to do with the religious legitimacy to deal with state power is problematic in, in Islam as in all other religions, I would say. Now, 
is this secularism and secularity. I think that there is a misunderstanding about secularism in, in Muslim-majority countries because there is a, a historical misunderstanding out of this colonized period and, and, and how it was imposed. By the way, all the secularists in Muslim-majority countries were not Democrats. That's the problem. So very often they were dictators. So the perception is, oh, in fact, if it's not religion, it might, it might be dictatorships or colonizing uh, force. I think that this is where we have to talk about. Your question, it's really, it's not a simple one. But it's, uh, it's, no, it's not a simple, it, in fact, it's a simple way, it's, it's a simple distinction that is made from the beginning, but in fact, the relationship between tradition and the scriptural sources, for example, is very complex. Because the way I put it, and, and in radical reform I'm dealing a lot with this by saying we have to deal with cultures in a very deep way. And tradition is also coming from culture. No one can deny the fact that at the beginning in the Islamic history, 80% of our history is coming from Arab culture. Patriarchy. It's, it was built on this, and Persian, and then uh, Turkish, but patriarchal in all things. So the way I'm putting it is that there is no religion without culture, because every religion came in a specific culture. There is no culture without religion, because every culture has something which has to do with a religious input, but religion is not culture. So you have no religion without culture, no culture without religion, but religion is not culture. So how do you deal with this? How are you going to try to, to, to extract the principles and being able to say, okay, this reading is a cultural reading, and this is what I call the cultural projection onto the text. There is a cultural projection. Even me, the way I'm reading the text now, it's clear anyone in the future, in 100 years, anyone who is going to read what I say, say, he was a Swiss. He was a European, of course, because I read it from my context. And I think that if I'm here now, you know, believing in God is not by accident. I think our experience, historical experience in the West, is also to bring richness to the way we read the text by, say, a different angle. Because at the same time, I'm able to say now from where I am that one of my great teachers, Abu Hamid al-Ghazali, 12th century, who just was talking so much about philosophy and mysticism, he was so great in so many uh, issues, so great, so deep, that when it came to women, he was saying the relationship between a man, a husband and a wife is the relationship between a master and a slave. So he was talking in a very specific culture in his time. So as much as I will take mysticism, philosophy from him, this I'm not going to take it at all. Because this is from where he's projecting onto the text. The text is not saying this. So from where I am, I can deconstruct this. So this is the work that we have to do. It's an ongoing process by saying the cultural projection onto the text, what is coming, and then add to this that even in the prophetic traditions, there are things that are culturally oriented that we need to deconstruct. So you have to do, to do the job here. It's very difficult to the point that even now, in our societies, in Britain now, you have a wave of people having lots of money coming with the 
ideology of the literalist, what we call the Salafi or the Wahhabi. We call them the Wahhabi, the right term is Salafi, and they come, they have money. Sometimes they are even supported by our governments in the West, and they come with a confusion. The only right way of being a Muslim is to be an Arab Muslim or to be a Muslim like the Arabs because this is the, 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 the real way. And this is very difficult. So we are dealing with these kind of problems. And I think that's a simple question put in this way, but very difficult to, 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 to deal with it within the community. And when you are talking about, uh, uh, you know, when you have the sense, for example, let me give you an example very quickly. When it comes to the headscarf or the dress, dressing and everything, so you can, you know, 99.9% .9 of the, the Muslim scholars are saying it's an Islamic prescription. But all of them agree on one thing. It's not a priority. First, you pray. You don't start with the headscarf as, as being everything. Now, with the pressure that we have in the West or the pressure that we had under colonization, some scholars reverse the whole thing, putting the headscarf as if this is essential. So you, 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 you will be assessed as a good Muslim with the headscarf. No. That's not the way. So we need to keep the priorities depending on, on, on the way we deal with the text, not the context. And the context, paradoxically, by saying remove the headscarf, scholars are saying, so we will keep it. <laughs> so it's a power struggle. And this, the, the, the true liberation here is to say, yes, it's important, but in the level of for some scholars it's at the third level, for the, the, the majority of them it's at the second, for almost any, no one is saying it's at the first. So, but we need to be very clear on not reversing the whole thing. And this is cultural also, the culture, the power of the culture is playing. It's playing in the way we deal with, with the obligation. It could be a prescription, but the, the priorities are changed, and this also has to be taken into account. And sadly, it falls to me to say time will have to be taken into account as well. Um, I'm afraid uh, that uh, Tarek has a commitment that he has to keep. And uh, there is a reception outside, which all are welcome, including those who are fasting and cannot uh, enjoy the food that is there. Um, you're invited. Um, but that's a very strange invitation. 